welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. This is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us at History, Culture, Trauma. We are excited to have this conversation today. I think it is an extremely important conversation as we recognize um, the Juneteenth National Independence Day. Um, I definitely uh, have a great rapport with our guest today. Uh, His name is Brandon Jones. And he is, um, one thing that we have in common is that we are both historical trauma consultants. And so he will really um, add his perspective today as we talk through how racism, obviously, but also how the institution of slavery is still impacting us today. Uh, he is currently uh, the Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health uh, Executive Director. And like I said, he is a historical um, and intergenerational um, trauma consultant. And just to give some background for those of you who aren't aware, um, Juneteenth is a new federal holiday. Um, just last year, it was um, considered a federal holiday. I believe it ha- that happened on June 17th. And we are um, really recognizing kind of the end of slavery, um, even though the dates are a little off. It was just a reflection of <laughs> How, how Texas is. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that my family is from Texas. And I have often talked about how Texas is behind the times when it comes to racism, among other things, but definitely when it comes to racism. And um, this holiday um, originates in Texas, Galveston to be specific. And it was a reflection of how long it took for Texas to um, really give up the institution of slavery after the, after the Emancipation Proclamation. So about two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, Texas um, was able to relinquish the institution of slavery. And um, this is where this celebration was birthed. And so what we hope to talk about today is really how is how has the institution of slavery impacted us as Americans, especially uh, descendants of slaves? And where do we go from here? And so, Brandon, please um, introduce yourself to our audience. And again, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Brandon Jones. I'm born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, you know, so the Twin Cities, most people, you know, when that, when I used to tell people that about 10 years ago, they would say, there's black people that live in Minnesota. I'm like, yeah, there's black people up here, right? It's not just the Vikings players and the Timberwolves. Uh, but now people know that we are kind of ground zero, ground central for all things social justice after the death of George Floyd. Uh, and really our social justice uptick started with the death of Philando Castile. So I always um, like to bring up those two because both of those two um, who lost their lives, unfortunately, uh, play a special role in this work and a special role with me. I went to high school at Philando Castile. So, you know, and then being being a therapist in this space during the, both of those times mm-hmm. and just seeing how community was impacted by both of those and other things in between has been pretty significant. So I always like to start with those two markers uh, to let people give, just give people a little bit of context for what it's like to be a Black person in a state like Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So. 
um yeah outside of that uh most people know me for the trauma work that i've done whether that's historical intergenerational or racial trauma i mm-hmm. often say that i was born uh with trauma and drama i you know growing up i seen a lot of domestic violence as a kid which is unfortunate um but i had good people in my life that helped me kind of move through a lot of those things and i went to therapy later on in life to mm-hmm. deal with those things as well so um, and being able to become someone who also helps people with similar challenges and adversity as well has been a true treasure. So um, outside of that, uh, I am a father. I have three daughters and I'm married. So that's a little bit about me. Well, thank you for joining us today. I always like to get conversations started um, on on this show around, you know, how did you first hear about ACEs and what was your initial reaction to finding out about that study? Yeah, great question. I, I originally heard about ACEs through a job. At the time, I was a campaign manager for something called the Be More campaign. And we were working with African, it was an intergenerational campaign working with African-American males uh, having conversations around domestic and intimate partner violence. So it's interesting how my personal story matches with my, my professional life. And we, we had uh, an opportunity to be trained as ACE facilitators in the state of Minnesota. And I was able to become one of those trainers. Um, and I went through this process to be able to uh, go out and teach others about the ACE study. So that was my introduction. One of my most memorable pieces of that training was when I uh, read the, we had to all take our own ACE questionnaire. And when I read that first question, I started to chuckle and it put, it was, it was a quiet room and it, and my chuckling disrupted the quiet ease in the room. And the facilitator said, Hey, Brandon, what are you over there laughing about? Right. <laughs> so I was like, well, I read that first question. I said, the first question here says, has an adult ever shoved, yelled, swore, or um, I think it was struck you. Right. And I was like, every adult in my life has told me to sit my little black ass down at some point in time in my life. And I was like, already I have one ace. And and it was funny because when I said that, the black folks in the room started to laugh and everybody else was looking like, what's going on here? And right then and there, I knew that the ACE study had some cultural differences. And not that the adults in my life were being malicious or trying to harm me as the little black boy who needed to sit his butt down but they were trying to keep me in my place, quote unquote. They were trying to keep me out of trouble and make sure that I wasn't disrupting others in spaces. And that was something that stood out to me right away. Now, prior to that, I had already been introduced to historical trauma. So I knew a little bit about what that meant, but it was very eye-opening as I went through the rest of the study and found out that my A score was a six out of 10. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I think... We both have similar stories in that I was introduced to historical trauma before I began kind of the work I'm with, I'm currently doing in ACEs. And so I think that gives a very different lens to this work, whereas kind of everyone else that I've encountered, with the exception of you, and I really mean just, just you, yeah. has a different um, introduction. They start with ACEs and then they may or may not get to historical trauma. Um, and so that that introduction, I think, really does help um, us to understand immediately that, you know, this is, you know, all the good things, you know, whether it's, yes, this is validating to the Black experience, or this is, you know, not culturally sensitive. And, you know, there's a lot more here 
that needs to be uh, brought to light when we add in this issue of, of race, race as a traumatic experience, or, or, or even better yet, um, being labeled as a race, as a traumatic right. experience. Um, so having the skin color um, being a traumatic experience in this space. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely want to know how did you get on track to, you know, being a historical trauma consultant? There's not many of us. Yeah, there isn't. Um, well, one one of the person that I ran into who introduced this to me is a man by the name of Sam Simmons. And the way that I ran into Sam, he's very well known. He's, he's nationally known, but very well known in this region of the Midwest. Um, I was do, I was working on I have two master's degrees. I was working on my first master's thesis. And when I was do, I was doing it on blackmail leadership. And my instructor said, hey, you need to go talk to this man named Sam Simmons. He said, do you know who that is? I had no idea who Sam was. He was like, well, you need to find him and talk to him. So I was looking for this guy. I couldn't really find him. He wasn't really Googleable at the time. And then I ran across a newspaper article where he was talking about the community and it had his uh, email in the, in the newspaper article. So I was like, okay, this is a sign from God that I need to talk to this Sam Simmons guy. So I actually reached out to him. He responded right away and invited me for an interview at his office. Now, the interview was only supposed to be for 45 minutes, but I ended up being in his office for about three hours talking to him about historical trauma. And he was the first person who kind of labeled what we see in the Black community as trauma. I've never heard it labeled that. I've heard at-risk youth, I've heard impoverished individuals, I've heard all the buzz terms, but no one's ever labeled it as trauma until I met him. And then I was like, why? He just like opened a whole new Pandora's box for me and connected so many dots. And I was just like, wow, my mind was blown. I literally shifted the focus of my uh, master's thesis to talk about based on the conversation. And then he introduced me to a person who is very paramount in this work by the name of Dr. Joy DeGruy Leary. He said, have you heard of this woman? Never heard of her. Have you heard of this book, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome? Never heard of it. He said, well, you need to read that book and don't talk to me until you read it and come back. (laughs) That's the kind of person Sam is. So I read the book and then I reached back out to him and that's what kicked it off. And probably about, this was back in 2009, 2010. So probably about two years later, I became an actual trainer when it came to historical trauma because people were actually starting to get a little bit of an inkling on what this was around that time. Uh, ACEs was really taken off and historical trauma was just a good pair to that. Um, and I think Dr. Joy's degree book was very, very popular at that time as well. So it all just kind of came full circle for me. And I started off locally, just talking to the community about some of the things, making those connections between the time period of slavery and even post-slavery till today. Yeah, that's, you know, again, our work or kind of like the the way that we got into this work is so similar, with the exception that my focus was uh, juvenile incarceration. And, and so uh, it was intergenerational incarceration focused specifically on yep. Black boys. And I think the the interesting fact that you were focusing on black male leadership and I was looking at black male incarceration and then we both got to the same um, space. Uh, and I think that um, one thing that you brought up that's somewhat controversial or actually very controversial here in America is this understanding that um, the way that black people are seen uh, and talked about in this country is really through the lens of culture and not trauma. And, right. you know, people will say, you know, 
this, they just have a different culture or they do things differently without really talking about root cause. When it comes to the African-American experience, you know, that seed is slavery. Uh, and so all of the things that make us unique uh, across the diaspora is really our experience with American slavery and how we have created a culture around it. And then that's mm -hmm. been passed along through generations. When you, um, what is the thing that stands out in your work around historical trauma? I know most people who, <laughs> who do this work, they have lots of stories about their audience and, and, oh, and those sessions. Um, but what stands out to you in your work um, around historical and intergenerational trauma? Two things. One, I know I, I know when I do a good training because there's no questions at the end. It's like I just came in and drop kicked everybody upside the head. And it was like there's no that's when I know. And at first I used to think that there was something wrong. Like, dang, did I did I like say something wrong? But then I realized I got people thinking. I got people thinking about this. They're actually questioning things in their lives. That was the first thing I know. And it, it literally took me like two or three years before I realized like, oh, people are actually processing because I'll get emails and stuff later with questions and thank yous. But when there's no questions, that's how I know I nailed it. The second thing, and this this one kind of scared me a little bit, is when I started to do the, now I live in Minnesota. Let me back up a little bit. So a lot of my audiences are predominantly white. However, I have had uh, several moments where I've had predominantly black audiences that I've talked about historical trauma. The amount of information that black folks, and I talk about it from a black lens, the amount of information that we don't know about our own history really scares me when it comes to this historical trauma stuff. We know a lot less sometimes than a lot of the white audiences know. And that's a different type of conversation when it comes to historical trauma as well, when I'm talking to people who have similar experiences as me versus people who don't. Now, the content is relatively the same, but the way that you communicate it and the understanding and the pain that people feel as well, I'm going through the presentation and the learning experience is very different. And those interactions, I do get questions and I get stories and narratives and things that people have gone through themselves. And to be, to be honest with you, almost every time that I've done a historical trauma training and there were several black people in the audience, somebody afterwards would ask me about therapy and counseling. They would come to me and say, hey, something, it could be anything that I say during the time makes me want to, are you available for counseling? Do you know somebody? It's time for me to start doing my own work. And that's another thing that gives me a lot of pride and joy is like people are taking this in and realizing like, oh, there's something that I need to do on my healing journey that I was not, you know, aware of or didn't feel like I needed to add the capacity at the time or I needed to kind of unlock that. So those are like the two biggest things that stand out to me. Yeah, I definitely have the, had the same type of experiences where when I first started, um, I would have either no questions or people would get upset. You know, I'm in Tennessee, yeah. so, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so people would Minnesota's get, you know, very upset. <laughs> uh, so then after a while, I was, you know, I got to the point where, you know, if they're not upset or if they're not, um, you know, processing, then that means, you know, I need to go back to the drawing board and, and do some different things because the topic is upsetting. It is, um, it is upsetting. It's definitely uh, a different narrative than what people are receiving um, messages from society. And, and that brings me to kind of what you're saying around 
when you are presenting to an all black audience or mostly black audience Mm -hmm. and talking about the historical trauma of slavery, that a lot of black people don't exactly know their history, which Mm -hmm. is not by chance because, you know, recently we've had uh, people, you know, throwing tantrums on uh, school board meeting floors about critical race theory. And what we're, what, it's essentially saying is that we need to tell the honest truth about America's history. Right. Um, and then this allows us to even have to start the process of healing. We all, we all have to get on the same page and say, Hey, this happened and it mm-hmm. wasn't right. And, you know, we still have racism before we can get to the point where we can actually, you know, address it. Uh, and so I think that's probably one of the saddest things that, that comes up is this, inability for Americans to process our right. past um, and also our inability to, or, you know, our being so focused on race while at the yep. same time acting like racism and slavery has not had an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it, it's a weird dynamic in this work. It is very, it is very weird. Well, I mean, we have, we are probably the most racialized society in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of any other group that is more race focused than us. And you notice this when we travel outside of the country, like, you know, when the first time I went, I think the first, the first place I went to outside of the country was Jamaica. And that was the most American I've ever felt in my life. It was like, it was just so bizarre because in my context, <clears throat> As a black male growing up where I come from, I never really associated myself as a quote unquote American. I was just trying to survive America just as a black man. But then you go to another country and they treat you like an American and they call you an American and you get you start to get these privileges and these benefits due to the power that America has globally that you don't get in your own country, which is very awkward feeling that you get as a black person. But it was something that I experienced, but it really highlighted to me just how racialized we are in, in this context, in the society, how I see how I've been conditioned to see myself as a complete victim within this system where other people don't necessarily see it like that. So with that mindset, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to behave and act and feel like a victim. And that's what ends up happening because one, we have been victimized and two, I haven't been shown anything different. I haven't been experiencing anything different. And this is why understanding our history is important and things like Juneteenth are important is understand the things that have happened to you don't necessarily need to happen to you in more modern forms if you know what has taken place, if you have exposure to what has happened. And so many of us don't have exposure. Yes, it's important to teach accurate history in schools, but also in community, we need to be telling our stories, no matter how painful they are, and making sure that our history lives on and we're creating more, you know, history as we go. And it's very important for us to do that because our kids depend on it. So it's, it's just something that, and I think, I hope that Juneteenth becomes a thing that we springboard into making sure that all our generations have accurate information about who we are and who we can be. Yeah, the the inability to accurately tell the story of the past is definitely hindering or stunting our growth as a country. Um, and and obviously we are so racialized as a country because of slavery and 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 the the institution itself, meaning the trauma of the institution, the assault, the murder, the the rape, the separation of families, 
Um, and, you know, just the all out, you know, overt oppression. Um, but then also how it fractured our country. So leading to war, you know, brother against brother, cousin against cousin, um, how it infiltrated our politics. Mm-hmm. And also how it uh, really became kind of a philosophical discussion. Should mm-hmm. Black people and Indigenous people be considered people and have mm-hmm. rights and um, be engaged in this American experience uh, in the same way that, that white people, well, specifically white men? Um, and that is something that people often forget, that it was not only the obviously barbaric institution, but all of the waxing and waning around it. Um, it, it was a discussion point. It was, you know, uh, white people sitting around the dinner table talking about whether or not black people had souls or, you know, should we abolish slavery? These were discussions that were had that were, you know, monopolizing our, you know, not just the physical self, but also our thoughts. You know, it was a war waged. It was abolitionists in the streets. It was a it was a religious issue and a moral issue mm-hmm. um, that we had to grapple with. And people chose sides. Right. And um, it really fractured our country as well. Absolutely. It was also economic. We can't lose the fact of that. That's a big piece of this. Because if those slaves weren't on those lands to, you know, harvest those crops, there was economic consequences (laughs) that end up happening. That's why we have a Juneteenth, because we're going to get some more crops and more seasonal harvest out of these folks before it's all said done. And if ain't nobody going to come down here and check us, well, we're just going to keep letting it roll until it does. That's what ended up. That's literally what ended up happening. So we can't lose the economic factor in this. And that also goes into our intergenerational trauma. You know, if you look at how the economy has shifted over time from slavery all the way till now, black folks have always been at the center of the economic conversation, whether we went into an industrial phase, even to globalization. You know, in our community, we have the saying that black folks are the last to get hired and the first to get fired. Well, where did that come from? That came from globalization. A lot of those black industry jobs went overseas and we started to notice we can let we can let go around here and these jobs are disappearing. And that's how we got to where we are now. And even today, we don't think about this. This may be another conversation, but how automation is impacting us. So um, as black folks and we look at jobs and economies and looking at now we're competing with robots just to survive economically as well. So we have historical trauma that connects even to this day. And a lot of us aren't aware of that because we haven't learned the history of what truly has happened to us over time. Yeah, the economic piece is the reason why slavery and racism is even a political issue. Um, that it, the reason the economic exploitation and all the benefits that go along with uh, exploiting um, slaves and people in co- people of color in general, because this is also kind of at the root of immigration issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the The point is that as we exploit and you know engage in wage theft. Um, to only um, support and uphold certain groups of people um, that is rooted in slavery, obviously, you know, we, we don't want to have to pay you for your labor Um, and not just your labor um, in the sense that of crops, but also your domestic labor to breastfeed our children, to um, clean our homes, um, to giving up your intellectual property, 
um, you know, inventions and you know, so much was taken during that institution that then became the norm moving forward. So even once slaves were freed, then it's sharecropping. So I still don't want to pay you. So now you get to live on my land, but I'm, I'm not going to, it's, un, you know, still unpaid labor, not slavery, unpaid labor. And then to the point where people, you know, a hundred years in the South after slavery, people were fed up and started the, you know, the great um, migration. And then that became an issue where we get to your neck of the woods, where we have black uh, laborers coming in, taking jobs that, and that pay less because it's okay for me to pay you less because your skin is darker. Right. And that then breeds even more racial tension between white laborers and then those laborers of color that are coming in from all over to include the South. And then of course, immigrating into uh, America. And it is all deeply rooted in white supremacy, this belief that only white men should proper, prosper in this country. Um, and slavery is, is so integral to our, the formation of our country and all the things that we have that now we're to the point where people want to say it's, it's, it doesn't affect us today. Right. And it's, it's interesting. The framework's still there and in, in so many different elements. It, it is very interesting. Um, but it's, again, it's something that we have to be honest about and, you know, right, right now, for the most part, we're talking about the context of African-American historical trauma, but really what we're talking about is American history. And yeah. when you frame it like that, then people are like, whoa, <laughs> but that is the truth. Yes, it is a collective, our, our fascination with race and is a collective mental illness um, yes. that is damaging more than just uh, black people and black communities. It's, it has an impact on us as a country. And this inability to move past how we've racialized um, certain groups um, has really handicapped us. And because if we think back, um, we definitely have this, these moments in history where America is number one in, in all, all these things. Then we get to integration uh, and then we begin to see a decline. And that's because you know, America has cut off its nose to spite its face because as we attempt to oppress other groups, we aren't able to be enriched as a collective, um, and mm-hmm. which is sad in a way. Right. Um, and so I think that this is a big conversation about, you know, our you know, American identity in general. Right, right. And we're at a pivotal point now where we we have to, figure out what is our American identity and how do we maintain that level of citizenship and own it? Um, I think that over, ooh, I mean, for a long, I would say since I'm black and I'm proud, we really have gotten away from an American identity. Like I said about myself and my experience outside of the country, you know, I realized that I was American when I wasn't here. <laughs> and I think that we're at a pivotal time now where we have to really figure out what does that citizenship mean to us as a collective and, mm. and own it and be, and be okay with what that is because this is our home. Yeah. So I think this, this conversation is, is, is great and we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk more about our shared American identity and definitely, you know, what's next in this field of historical trauma and where is this moving us towards? So we'll be right back after the break. Thank you.
become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back with Brendan Jones, historical trauma consultant. And today we're, again, really acknowledging um, the newly recognized federal holiday, Juneteenth, um, which is really uh, focused on, um, you know, the emancipation of slaves, but more importantly, um, how we can celebrate um, this institution being uh, abolished and how we move forward as a race within America. before we went on break, we were we were talking about kind of the field of historical trauma consulting and um, and and lessons that we've learned as we are kind of practitioners in this field. Um, one thing that I think, um, and this is something that I talked with in the episode we had with um, Dr. Sandy Bloom, is that trauma is a driver of evolution and how. Um, comfortable or toxic our environments are um, as human beings, we, we adjust. Mm-hmm. And I think that this field of historical trauma has really opened up an understanding of um, epigenetic changes and how our, our physical selves evolve in, in environments that are not um, optimal, um, like racism, like poverty. And so I really want to talk about that a little bit and because it gets very controversial in this space. And, and just to give some context in this country, we have pathologized race. We have these beliefs that come from Europe that um, indigenous black people are, um, or Africans are um, 
you know, uncivilized, that we're savages. And this is at the kind of the root of our understanding of race here in America. Uh, and this has definitely come from, you know, it has been codified in textbooks. And it is obviously not the case. There's no such thing as genetic race. And so this means that environments are really the drivers of the differences between us as opposed to genetics. Um, but we have these very clear issues um, within um, that are cultural, that are physical. You know, I always use the example of um, Black people being considered predisposed to diabetes and, and high blood pressure. Uh, and so this, I think, is extremely interesting and can open up this the field that we're in. What are your feels about what's next for historical trauma and, and what are the implications for us really doing this work? Yeah, good question. <clears throat> I kind of see 2.5 things as what's next in this work. Uh, the first one is what you just started off with was epigenetics. A lot of folks are leaning, especially for folks who are a little bit more scientific, leaning into the epigenetic understandings of trauma, historical trauma, and how it affects people, which is not a bad place to go. I think that there's a lot of merit there, but it's not the only piece to there. And then for the other folks who may not be really into the epigenetics, but still are advancing the work, they're looking at the adverse community experiences. So looking at that social location and that lo local context of where in people are, with the environments that people are in, et cetera. And those for, for those folks, they're looking at more of the justice things, where the inequalities are, some of the systems that lead to the ACEs and things that end up happening. And then for the, the 0.5 folks, the folks that I'm referencing where I would hope we are going is really taking a deeper dive with and utilizing those first two, but really taking a deeper dive in the culture. Now, not a lot of people are willing to go here because it is controversial and you have to deal with some ugly truths of what have hap what's happened in this country and you have to actually look at the cultural dynamics within this country. And that those cultural dynamics are layered. And right smack dab in the middle of it is race. And that and it's already not easy for us to talk about. But when we start to look at how those how those cultures interact with each other, then we start to get a lot closer to what the what do we need to do as far as racial healing and things of that nature. But we have to be able to have honest dialogue about culture. Over time, if we think about African-American folks, over time, Black folks have developed culture responding to trauma. I mean, almost in every element of our lives, from the foods that we eat to the music that we create, the dances that we have, the way we name our children, the clothing that we wear, <laughs> the clothing that we don't wear anymore. A lot of these things have been based in trauma, even how we relate to one another as far as relationships. A lot of that has been response to trauma. At one point in time, Black people called our culture the struggle. Like, that should resonate with people. But it doesn't because we don't think about that because it's too painful. Or like you talked about, the pathologizing piece becomes too, you know, too controversial to be honest about what has happened. But we have to if we're going to move forward. And the reason why I say that, to take it out of the, the African-American context a little bit, is that the world is becoming a lot smaller as far as our interactions and communications with one another. And you have to be able to develop your cultural intelligence in order to survive in this world. You know, people are probably wondering, what in the world is cultural intelligence? It is our ability to be non-harmful to other people and to function amongst people who have backgrounds that you're not familiar with. And if you haven't 
been if you haven't seen how demographics have changed in your local areas, you will start to see them pretty soon because people are moving everywhere, just even here in the United States. And you're going to have to learn a little bit about other people's cultures. Even if you don't understand it, you don't need to understand it. If you don't like it, you don't need to like it. If you don't want it to be your culture, it doesn't have to be. But you need to understand enough to be functional with those people and cause no harm. And this is why it's been a very difficult conversation in the DEI space is that a lot of people can't shake the context of race to even look at culture. Like when, when, even when you say culture, people go straight to race and sometimes ethnicity. That's a sign that we have a lot of work to do because culture is a much broader thing than that. And it's going to be even more important element to our lives. Yeah. Essentially, culture is an adaptation to your environment. That's bingo. That's all it is. And so if you're noticing, especially we all live in the same country, we all live in, you know, we live in the same state, we live in the same neighborhood and there's differences. That means that our environments are made different based on skin color and and that people um, tend to not understand. And I think that's why epigenetics is so interesting, because it is kind of the beginning of that conversation to say, that there's nothing different amongst us. There's no genetic differences that that make up race because race isn't a real thing. It's a it's a made up construct, um, and so that means that our environments are different. And so, what about this environment that can be different if we're living in the same neighborhood or if we're you know we're living uh, in the same city? And the difference there is racism. That one group is experiencing much more comfortable. Um, much more enriched environments in the in other groups are experiencing much more hostility and toxicity based just on skin color. Um, and that allows us to have a clear conversation about school outcomes and, um, you know, economics and jobs and housing, because the racism that's experienced impacts all of those. And, our society says, well, those groups of people are just making bad decisions mm-hmm. or even, you know, even more controversial is the understanding of IQ and how IQ is impacted right. um, by these issues. And to, you know, when we talk about um, educational outcomes, mm-hmm. I think there's so much there. Um, there's so much possible as we dig into um, historical trauma. Uh, and so I definitely agree with what your assessment around um, you know, which way will we go? Um, social justice. Um, I, one thing that I believe is, you know, positive childhood experiences as an equity issue, right. you know, facilitating positive childhood experiences for groups that have long not had enriched environments. Um, and, right. and what does, you know, that's actionable to people and or could be right. uh, and could be driven by policy. What are some other solutions that you might see to to this issue of, of racism in America? I, I think that is the solution. I think if we can focus on the, the healthy development of children, that is one thing that we can all galvanize around as people. Mm-hmm. I don't know too many people that dislike children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't see it that often. There's some people who are like, I don't want to have any children. That's fine. But when it comes to kids, I think that's an opportunity for us to galvanize, to deal with some of the racial injustice. If we really want to be the country that we say that we are, that is a great unifying place for us to start to make sure that all our kids have 
you know, resources that are going to get them to a healthy level to keep our society moving in the direction that we wanted to move in. Um, but in order to do that, it's not just, you know, focus on the kids. There are actual steps that need to be taken place, right? We have to make sure that we have the economics for folks to live in environments that are not impoverished and that people aren't suffering and wondering where the next meals are going to come from or not um, couch hopping or uh, highly mobile folks or folks or families that are homeless. Um, those are things that are important. One of the most important things is how are we developing actual family dynamics, you know, I shared earlier that I was married, but marriage is not the answer for everybody. But having healthy adults and families is important. Um, so you may want to have unions with folks, but you shouldn't have survival units. And I see communities who have families, quote unquote, who are really survival units. There's a bunch of individuals who live amongst each other and they're all just trying to survive and get from one day to the next. Well, when you have a family, there's, you know, there's interdependence, there's um, there's, uh, you know, there's practices and things in place for the family to support one another as they go. And there's healthy people involved. And that's what's important is making sure that we're developing healthy family dynamics as we go. And, and family looks different and it doesn't have to look the same, but it should be healthy. Like that's the one element that should be present in families is that there's healthy adults involved. And I think that with that become uh, living conditions. Um, you know, children don't grow up in environments that uh, ch children who grow up in environments that aren't healthy living conditions, like the air, the water quality, um, the actual sanitation of the environments, those children struggle. I was one of those kids. I grew up impoverished. You know, I grew up on WIC food stamps in Section 8, and it was not easy. Yeah, I have degrees and I've made it to a certain level in my life, but it took a lot of work. And there's a lot of people that I grew up with that haven't achieved, you know, the such things that I have. And a lot of that has to do where we come from. And they've stayed stuck in those environments and they're still there. And that does something to the psyche and the development of an individual when they're in those spaces. How do we get to those spaces? How do we assist those spaces to become spaces that are healthy for everyone involved so that those people can develop in a healthy way? Um, and I think really that's, the, I think that's one of our unifying points is really being able to look at the children and saying, what are we doing for our, our youth so that they can be quality individuals as they get older? Yeah, I think this brings our conversation to kind of you know, the realm of black parenting. And I, I definitely oh. want to talk about that before, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> before we, it. before we end this, um, because there's so much there. Um, and, you know, parents are kind of, you know, they go through the process of acculturating children. And, yep. uh, and so, and they get it and black parents get a bad rap in this society. And that kind of goes Absolutely. back to the conversation that we had around culture <laughs> and, uh, you're right. This this conversation is one of those hard truths that will get, you know, your all black crowd riled up yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when yeah. you talk about historical trauma. Uh, but I do want to talk about black parenting in general. What are the solutions there? And also, more importantly, that at least in my role in, in as a historical consultant, is I've really been focusing on changing the narrative around black parents. Um, and talk more about the environments that people are subject to and that make them survival-based parents. Um, and, but then on the flip side, you know, parents having to kind of internalize and do the work of healing for themselves mm -hmm. so that they can be cycle breakers um, right. for their children. And so 
spanking always comes up in that conversation. Always, always. Always comes up in that conversation. And we have to be able to realize that, you know, these layovers from slavery like harsh parenting, like uh, issues around attachment because of family separation. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you don't want to become overly attached to your child if you know you're going to be separated. Um, using, being uh, very physical with your children. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are layover from, from slavery. And that's yeah. our root cause. How, what, is the, what are those conversations like with the Black community what is that? What needs to happen in order to kind of change some of those cultural issues that are still lingering from slavery and parenting? Yeah. Well, first, you brought it up. It always comes down to how we discipline our children, which is a bad place to start. When we talk about parenting is how we're going to punish them for being out of control or doing things we don't want to do. So if, if, if that's our starting thought around parenting is discipline our kids, we've already started off on the wrong foot. And we have to understand that developing children is more than the discipline that we um, that we exert on them. But when it comes to that discipline piece, a lot of parents don't even know where that comes from. And discipline started off for a lot of black parents on the plantation for the ones of us who were on plantations as a protective measure because you didn't want your child once your child got to be you know seven eight nine ten years old you didn't want your child to be moved to another part of the plantation or sold down the river or things of that nature working you wanted your child to stay next to you but that that level of kind of shunning your child and saying no they're not that ready yet they're not that smart yet that has developed uh, through intergenerational trauma to what we see today where we nag our children, we crack jokes on them and we, you know, we have fun, we pick on them and things like that. But in today's context, that is not healthy behavior. We're in a, we have a way different type of social dynamic with our young people where that has to be let go. And all our children are not bad. Our kids, most, most black children are not bad. They see a lot of bad stuff and they're exposed to a lot of stress, but they're not bad children. But we automatically think that they're up to something or you're doing no good or you're fast. These are all, you know, cultural affirmations that we have in our community that are not that are not positive. They are negative because we have this assumption that our kids are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that gets pathologized as well. And as it was turns us into these bad parents. But a lot of black kids are just like any other kids. They're going to do they're going to be curious. They need encouragement. Um, They're going to be excited and overjoyed. They're going to be loud. Like all kids are like that. They're going to do these things because that's what kids do. But over time, since we've had our family dynamics been so fractured, we have lost even the concept of what children are. We have adultified so many of our kids to take on, you know, big people responsibilities so young that they don't even get childhoods a lot of the time. And this is a very serious thing that we have to pay attention to. This is why in our community, we call people little mama and little man instead of who they are as a little boy or a little girl. And that's, and that's who they are. They're little kids, but we have given them adult responsibilities way too early. And that's due to survival stress management. You know, you're, you're using compensatory action, filling in for what's missing in order to make do to move on. And we have, and this is why developing family dynamics is so important because you want your kids to just be kids. Let them have their joy, make their mistakes on a kid level instead of doing things at an adult level when they're children. Our children miss so much of their childhood that they develop so quickly that they do find themselves in negative situations because they are quote unquote acting grown. We even say that in our community as well. Well, where do they get that from? They're putting grown positions so often. 
And that comes from historical trauma. So there's a lot of work for us to do. You asked for some of the solutions to this. One of them is co-parenting. Whether you are in a relationship or not with the with the um the co-parent, I was gonna say the father, but with the co-parent, I'm talking to, I use I'm used to talking to moms a lot, but with the co-parent, you have to be in a space where you can both parent this child, whether you're together or not. It's very important. One of the things that me and my wife, our parenting styles are very different, but we co-parent every day. You know, sometimes my wife makes decisions. I'm like, why did you tell them girls to do that? Like, that is not the thing to do. But that's what mom said. So I have to back up mom and make sure that they follow mom's direction. Because if I go in yelling at my wife, like, you don't even know how to parent these girls and blah, blah, blah. What is that? What message does that send to my daughters? You know, it's going to be splitting between the parents. It's not healthy. So we always are on the same page, negotiating, talking, figuring out what the best moves are for our children as they develop. That's what every family has to do is make sure that the co-parenting is there. And then I would say, let kids be kids. They're going to make mistakes. Kids are not robots. They're not going to be doing everything perfect because you program them that way. And then secondly, I think one of the most important things that we have to do is we have to be invested in our children's education. And that doesn't mean that you show up to school every time, but you should show up to school. But we have to be reading to them. We have to be introducing them to different learning opportunities. So many parents that I know today, they'll give the kid their phone because they got games on it or an iPad or a tablet. And they'll just let the kid sit there and just drown away in technology every day. And you think your kid's being, you know, maintained in the moment, but they're learning and they're not learning from you. They're learning from whatever they scroll on on that screen. And that can be very dangerous because you can lose your kid pretty quickly in this type of environment. So I'll pause right there. Yeah, I think what you brought up is, I mean, that's a lot there. And we also need to kind of acknowledge that so much of black parenting that's laid over from slavery is, is around not just survival based, but is around this kind of understanding of the white gaze that um, my children have to be hyper um, structured and very good children um, because their behavior could be life or death or their behavior. You know, the, the stakes are high for black children when they're not well behaved um, historically and today. But definitely historically, which is where kind of like these these roots um, lie and that we have to um, help, you know, black parents to understand that 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 is a layover from slavery, that this um, that this idea that my child has to be, you know, so uh, well put together when they're out in public or um, or at school you know, that then leads to physical, (laughs) physical interactions when they're not. um, That is just this, you know, we're too hyper-focused on the behavior of black children, not just black parents, but as a society, we're too hyper-focused on the behavior of black children. And it it would be a better world if black children could just be children. Right. They could just have, you know, childlike responsibilities, be able to play. But definitely we we are aware that there's a very different standard when it comes to that. That's still, again, that layover from from slavery in our parenting, but also in our perception of black children as a whole. So, you know, even other races viewing black children uh, and their behavior as more than just the behavior of children. Um. Before we go, um, what's next for you? I know you have a new position. Yeah. and What's the big picture for you as an individual? 
Yeah, my big picture is to continue to advance the mental and emotional well-being of children by helping parents and caregivers to the best of my ability. And when I say children, I'm talking about children and youth. So from conception to about 24 years old is the demographic that I I focus on, Um, because once that brain stops developing, it's hard to learn new stuff. It's hard to make those adjustments. They can happen. It takes a lot of work. So as that brain's still developing, that's where I'm really putting a lot of my focus. And my organization is doing a lot of that work. My organization's called Minnesota Association for Children's Mental Health. We kind of have three pillars. One is we work directly with youth through theater arts and digital arts. We work with parents and caregivers, giving them support and advocacy, and then we do professional development. And we try to make sure that we are advancing the optimal mental health and emotional health of all young people because we know that they're our future, but they're also our present. And if we don't do anything today, they are going to continue to struggle as we've seen throughout this pandemic. Yeah, that's for sure. This collective trauma has really impacted our youth, um, all youth, and especially youth dealing with poverty, youth dealing with racism. And so definitely thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for joining us today and having a discussion around the implications of slavery. And as we kind of, you know, recognize this federal holiday that is signifying the end of the institution of slavery in America and how important that is and how long reaching slavery is even to today, we are still being impacted by this, by this institution. So again, thank you for joining us. um, And we will definitely have you back on the show again, Mr. Jones. Awesome. I would love to come back. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.